Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Alex Merrill. Welcome to the Inspirati. I've enlisted a roster of ultra-talented international creators and curators to join me on this podcast to talk about how they've charted their individual paths, overcome challenges, and found their true artistic selves. From candid conversations with eminent makers to showcasing exciting up-and-comers across the industries of art, music, fashion, entertainment, literature, and design, we get to illuminate our perspectives, learning from these unique stars within the constellation of global creation. The Inspirati was created for those seeking inspiration and those seeking to inspire. Thanks for listening. In 1969, a voracious cinephile started an underground film journal reportedly as a way of getting into movie screenings and premieres. The publication was titled Interview, and the movie buff was Andy Warhol. In the early 70s, the magazine's style evolved with a new focus on society figures and celebrities and served as an extension of the lightning-in-a-bottle Andy captured in his art studio, The Factory. Early editor Bob Colicello described Interview like this. Every issue was like some crazy dinner party where nobody really knew anybody else, but they all ended up having a great time. 50 years later, ironically, at a film party, a charming man strolled up to my DJ booth and requested Hit the Back by King Princess. It was an unexpected song request, a really great song request, and the man requesting, who so clearly had his finger on the pulse of New York City, was Interview's current editor-in-chief, Nick Haramis. Since 2020 was the year we were supposed to become friends, I invited Nick to catch me up on his journey from small-town Canada to building an illustrious career in New York magazines, including tenures at Black Book, Bullet, and T, the New York Times style magazine. We also discuss Interview's instrumental role in shaping culture over the past five decades, why shocking your parents means you've done something right, and what the future looks like for the city that never sleeps. Nick is a leading light of the literary world, and I learned so much from his perspective on curating culture. Please enjoy. Where are you? I'm out in Millbrook in like a friend's farmhouse 
And uh, yeah, we've been coming up here quite a bit to get out of the city. And it's like this old, haunted, very cool property in the middle of nowhere. So we're up in Melbourne. I feel like that's what everybody needs in 2020 is more friends with <laughs> with farmhouses farm that yes, are open. <laughs> um, how are you? Where Where are you? You're in Vancouver? I'm good. Yeah, I'm back. I'm back in our motherland. How's I ended up here. Here? It's been a whirlwind. I was in, yeah, I was in Paris when, when the world started locking down and I came here and just have kind of been hiding out and yeah. working from, from Canada, which has been wild. Do you have a place there? Are you with your family or do you? I'm with my family and I'm, it's, it's kind of hard to commit to anything right now. Yeah. So I haven't signed any leases, but we'll see. I might see about Europe next year. I'm sort of in flux right now. It's, I feel like the beauty and the curse of the moment are that it's opened everyone up to being able to think about like, what if I lived somewhere entirely new or what if I uprooted and did something entirely different, but because things are so in flux, nobody's actually pulling the trigger on any of it. It's like impossible to make a decision, but absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's an interesting year for sure. I have this, I was, when I knew I was going to be speaking to you, I have this snapshot of meeting you in my head. Same. I remember so well, hit the back. Exactly. Exactly. I was like, my client basically said, you know, it's going to be a super schmoozy party. Nobody's going to dance. And I was sitting there in my corner DJing all quietly and you came up and you were like, yeah, I was like, like, I was like, I left the party having made a friend. She played the music that I love. Yeah. <laughs> and you succeeded at starting a little dance party at a party that was not supposed to I dance. I, I remember so clearly, like I, I can count on like one hand who, who like kind of joined in <laughs> like reluctantly, almost because I sort of drunkenly made them, but yeah <laughs> totally I know I was so bummed I was like he needs to be at every party I ever DJ and then this year <laughs> happened and like everything fell apart yeah so we I mean we were in Minnesota for a long time and now we're back in New York what have you did you have a place in New York I did I don't anymore I just you got had someone I had someone go in and and yeah. pack it up in May because it it was when everything was really really bad in New York and I was yeah, like yeah, I just yeah. don't think I'm going to be back anytime soon and yeah it's a lot of overhead to carry for a year when obviously totally. DJ gigs aren't popping off exactly yeah have you been doing any have you been doing virtual stuff or I haven't I had such a good run yeah. that doing the less great version of that now just feels like I'd rather be putting my attention elsewhere, I guess. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you grew up on the East Coast, right, of Canada? Yeah, I grew up in uh, in Cornwall, Ontario. Small which, town. if you're not familiar, is on the Via Rail route from Montreal to Toronto. It's like the only reason people know it. Oh, I'd, actually, I don't like doing it down like that. It has a lot of local charm, but that that's how most people know it. And it had a paper mill at the time, and that was its sort of big thing and my family grew up there my dad has nine brothers and sisters and the whole family grew up there and so a lot of them are still there but I, I lived there until I was 12. What was that like? Um, it was great I always have to kind of bite my tongue like my knee-jerk superficial response is like, like I, I knew I wanted to, to get out of there and I guess part of me did if only because making a culture magazine from Cornwall, Ontario didn't feel like that was going to pan out. But I'm also like quick to be dismissive of it in a way that's not totally authentic. It's like, it was great. It is is a, I don't know what the population is, but it's a small city or like a big town. And our family was like quite 
well-known, whatever that means, in a very small town. They were really involved in like the church and uh, in community stuff. And so it felt really like home. And, uh, and my, my parents, who are no longer together, they, they both lived there together and raised me there for a bit. And then my parents separated and I ended up moving with my dad. And we kind of bopped around small town Ontario. But yeah, Cornwall, Cornwall was home. I feel like those small towns that make you dream of big cities are sometimes such an important part of, of your childhood foundation, even if it's not, you don't get born into the thing that you want. Sometimes that sort of motivates you to take those steps. It sounds so pat, and I guess I'm immediately going into magazine stuff, but I've heard from so many people that interview specifically was kind of like a gateway into the culture that they were never in fact, a part of, you know, like so many people throughout the various iterations of the magazine were like, I didn't go to Studio 54. I didn't know Basquiat or Warhol or or what or whatever sort of version of the magazine they grew up in. But they were able to sort of look into the culture and feel like they were experiencing it by reading the magazine. And that sounds like such perfectly wrapped bullshit coming from <laughs> me. But it's but it's really true. I, I grew up reading magazines and learning about the world through magazines because the internet I remember like if you were ever trying to like discover something at my age on the internet it was so slow that you could never actually do anything surreptitiously you you can never like hide an internet search because it like took forever to load and like you'd like print it out and have like stacks of paper exactly and people couldn't like use the line if they were using like it was it was Nothing was sort of like a smooth sort of personal journey through anything, but magazines kind of were. And I remember reading Interview, among others, like Vanity Fair, the Hollywood issue was always such a big deal for me. Those got, covers. Like, yeah, those covers, the like pull-outs and uh, I don't know, Spin and Rolling Stone and Entertainment Weekly and so many different magazines through which I consumed culture, but all, you know, through magazines. Do you feel like that's what drew you to journalism originally? Was that relationship with magazines? I think so, because I didn't totally know how it was going to manifest at a certain phase in like high school, I think. I fancied myself like I, I was going to be the next Kevin Williamson, who, if you're not familiar, was the screenwriter who did, I, he did like Dawson's Creek, but he also did Scream and a largely unsung movie with Katie Holmes and Marissa Coughlin called Killing Mrs. Tingle that then was changed to Teaching Mrs. Tingle. I remember that. I totally remember that movie. That was such a moment in in like teen films. Totally. Anyway, I was like, I'm going to be the guy who does this sort of like verbose conversations, but like sort of really polysyllabic verbose conversations between people. And that was going to be my thing, like kind of ignoring the fact that the person I was emulating had already done it really well. <laughs> and so I kind of thought maybe that's what I would do. I was so, you know, like so delusional. At one point I, I was like, I'm going to be, an, I'm going to be in front of the camera. I'm going to be like an actor or a musician. And I remember once in like the local radio station, they had an ad for an agency. And I guess weirdly that we were just talking about Dawson's Creek because Katie Holmes, I think was, somebody who had been signed to this agency, like the only famous person that had been signed to this agency that advertised on the radio. And I made my dad take me to a meeting with one of the agents. And of course, 
they'll accept anyone into like that you pay them so they were just like yeah you you seem great um but I remember in the like informational interview with my dad there they were like so what you know do you like what or what is your favorite movie they were just trying to get to know me and I was like you know all of them and I remember (laughs) sort of panicking like I couldn't even think of a single movie that I like Anyway, so that was short-lived, and I was—I decided not to become an, an actor. A Hollywood star? Yeah, I don't know. And then I guess writing became the thing that I thought I was good at and could manage. And it always, I think when you're a kid, it feels nice to get immediate validation from people who you look up to or your mentors who are like, you're good at this thing. And so I was pretty good at it. And I started dabbling in different kinds of writing and uh, ended up getting into magazines. I, I went to McGill for college and did my undergrad in English literature. And again, was just kind of like, I don't know, I like words and I'm not totally sure how I'm going to use them, but I enjoy using them in some way. And then in my final year of college, when everyone kind of went to Cabo or, or wherever they were going to get drunk and have Go sex. Go do body shots. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I went to New York for the first time and I took, did I take the bus? I can't remember. I, I came to New York and I stayed at a hotel and I was by myself and I remember feeling really worldly. And um, I went to... I mean, you were leaving small town Canada and going to New York. Totally. That's worldly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went to Paper Magazine, V Magazine. Maybe there was one other one. Anyway, applying for an internship, which now is so funny because like if anybody who seemed kind of okay came and knocked on my door and was like, I would love to work for free, I would be like, okay, come on in. Um, but at the time it felt like I was really competing to get an internship. And uh, anyway, I got all of them and I chose this magazine called Black Book because it seemed sort of best suited to my interests at the time. But yeah, that's anyway, I came down to my final year of of college and fell in love with New York immediately. And then magazines became the thing. So what was Black Book like? Because you because by the time you left, you were at the top of the masthead, right? Yeah, Black Book was really cute. Uh, (laughs) I, I remember the editor who I was interviewing with for the internship. Her name was Jess Hall. And I think she might be, I don't know, she went to National Geographic, maybe she popped around. But anyway, I've lost track. But she was the person who interviewed me. And I remember like going onto her MySpace page before I interviewed to find out like, you know, that she liked Amy Winehouse and that her favorite book was whatever it was. And I remember in the interview trying to sort of just drop in that like I too loved all of the exact same things that she liked. So I've that totally I could done that. Endear myself to her. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I started working there. And very quickly, it was sort of at the nascence of magazines realizing that they needed online content. Actually, I can't even remember. Maybe it was like they just knew that they needed to put the stuff online. It was like that. Right. 2007. And I think a lot of people weren't even archiving their stuff digitally. It was just like it was a magazine or you were a website, but you kind of weren't both. And people were kind of figuring out how to do that. So they needed a web editor. And again, I feel like... (laughs) I just always kind of fell upwards. I, I, I was not qualified for that, but they needed somebody and I was a Canadian. So in order to get the job, they had to sponsor my visa. And by the time wow. I went through all of that and realized I was not qualified for that job, they put such time, energy and money into like getting me there that um, they moved me over to the magazine, which is where I wanted to be anyway. So, this, so then I worked there. 
And they were like, he likes Amy Winehouse. And so does, <laughs> so yeah, does the editor. So like, he's got like, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interest-wise, it kind of made sense. I just wasn't good at, at the computer. And uh, it was great. It's funny. I look back. It's funny how different... I don't have, like, obviously, Friendster or MySpace anymore. So, like, those cultural time capsules are kind of gone. But until recently, I had Facebook. And that's where I kind of archived many of those memories. It's like, you know, the photo albums that you had all kind of were there. And we were so nuts. Like, we, when we were junior editors, me and a small group of people would have, like, huge parties in our office. We would have, like, 60 people on a weekend come into the office and throw like a rager no way we kind of just didn't even think that it was crazy I remember one it was like it became advertised on the internet and like I remember like there was a hill figure kid there and there were like it it just became this larger than life thing and people were smoking inside and it never occurred to us that like maybe I think we were kind of emulating in our twisted way a version of the factory, you know? Right. Where, where we right. were like, this is also a place where people can come and socialize, but instead we just had like a massive, massive party. Anyway, no art we, was being created. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, actually we did have a really cool feature there at the time where we would invite famous people to come in and do murals or graffiti on the walls. So like Casey Spooner came in and The Kills came in and Animal Collective and Dev Hines and... uh a bunch of people came in and just like made art on the on the wall. So it kind of did have a bit of a community center vibe to it or something. But we certainly weren't allowed to be throwing parties. But yeah, I was a, I was a web editor for a very short lived time. And then I was a junior editor and I kept kind of moving up there. And yeah, by the end, I, I was I was running the magazine uh, with the team. And it was great. It was such trial by fire. I had never done any of it before but I guess I always was just my line of thought was that as a Canadian I could be like politely persistent about what I wanted and I think kindness and humility go a long way and when you pair that with a sort of with a like a with a quiet consistency about what you want I think like often you're able to to get it so I was able to kind of figure it out as we went along but it was great I look back super fondly on that time I always feel like I found that in Canadians who left. Like I always found Canadians in New York and there was that pairing of really nice, really polite kind of self-deprecating humor tied with the ambition of leaving Canada to go do something. And so that for some reason was a cool personality pairing I always found. Yeah, it was a little bit, I'm sure it's a combination of where I came from and then and then, and then where I moved to. Because I remember when I first got to New York, the immediate cultural differences that I hadn't really considered. Like I would go to a McDonald's and I would say like, oh, may I please have the, you know, blah, 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 (laughs) number one meal. And then the person in front of me would be like, give me the, like, give me the two cheeseburger combo or like, I'll take the blah, blah, blah. And it was just these small linguistic cues that ultimately never have I ever heard a may I in New York no never and never I still, and I still I mean it, it's just it's more than anything just the vocabulary that I use and the way that I talk but I still use it and I think people are still a little bit like shook <laughs> when they are like unnerved when they hear it totally so then after Black Book you went directly to Bullet mm-hmm. I left Black Book 
and uh, I was asked to go to Bullet, and Bullet was a magazine that was short-lived, sadly, because it was so cool. And it was run by a bunch of young kids who, I say this all the time, and I always wonder, it's meant to be totally complimentary, but they didn't like totally know what they were doing. Nobody had a background in magazines. They all had, they were all so creative and brought so much to the table, but nobody knew how to make a magazine. So it wasn't, I think it's difficult to know what the rules are and consistently be aware that you're trying to break them to make something new. I think it's easier and freer to just like not know what the rules are to begin with and just kind of like make this thing in your own image. And so the magazine was nuts. It was like stuff that we were doing like, and and I've seen other people do it now. Like I think Rookie took a page from our magazine, but like, you know, we were doing sticker pages and we were doing the one, the one shoot that I really found to be so uh, special was, well, I should say that there was always a front and a back cover and they were always in dialogue with each other based on the theme of the issue. So we had one issue that was themed uh, around the idea of obsessions, people's obsessions, or the idea of an obsessive personality. And we shot, Mariona Pavanko shot Daniel Radcliffe as like a 50s pinup teen idol or matinee idol. And then we took those photos from the shoot and using those images, printed those pictures onto like a cake and onto underwear and made locker posters out of them and created shrines out of them and then cast Juliette Lewis as Daniel Radcliffe's biggest fan and inserted her into the world of this sort of like crazy fandom. And that was our other cover. And so they were always kind of in dialogue. And I thought that was a really neat, I still always want to do that with interview, like have two different covers that, that talk to one another, but yeah, it was, it was, it was such a great experience. And those, uh, I feel like I learned so much, you know, I started and I was like, Oh God, what am I going to learn here? Cause I, nobody knows how to do, (laughs) do anything. And I left being sort of totally proved wrong. I, it was, it was such a great experience. And then you went to tea. Then I went to tea. I had been asked to interview a T for a web. <laughs> it's such a recurring motif in my eye. Uh, <laughs> they asked me to, if I wanted to apply to be the web editor. And I kind of didn't because I'd had the experience before of not being good at it. But right. of, course, of course I wanted to. Of course I wanted to work for the New York Times. So I applied and then like ultimately didn't get it. And I remember just it was a confluence of things. It was my 30th birthday and I was in New Orleans with Uh, my then boyfriend and my best friend, we were having a great time. And I was supposed to do the ideas test and edit test for the for that job. And I just like kind of did it, but didn't want to ruin the experience of my birthday in New Orleans. And so my heart wasn't in it. It clearly wasn't the right fit. I didn't get the job. And then uh, a senior editor position opened up and I got that job. And it was an absolute dream. Leaving, Leaving to go to interview was clearly the move but it was such a difficult decision to make I think walking into that building every day just just like the act of walking through those doors I like changed me you kind of like stand a little bit taller even though I worked at the style magazine and I you'll notice how self-deprecating I can be it was like we were doing sort of like sequins for spring (laughs) (laughs) or like you know if we weren't covering conflict and we weren't investigative reporters and we weren't frontline journalists, but you are the company you keep. And we were surrounded by all of this stuff that felt so important. 
and, 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 and we did important thoughtful stories as well. But yeah, just being there and being around all of these people and being able to edit while I was there, I edited, you know, like all of my favorite authors from Augustine Burroughs to Jeffrey Eugenides to Mary Gateskill, I, I, to Rivka Galchin, all of these novelists and authors who I looked up to so much. I was able to edit them and work with them for long periods of time on, on meaty stories. And so that was really cool. That was, I was there for about four years and I, and I, yeah, I, I mean, I loved that gig. And didn't you put like Cindy Crawford and Neil deGrasse Tyson in conversation together? And that was a column that I wish I could take credit for. It was one that I like to think I like amped up maybe a little bit because it's so right. in keeping with my sensibility of like, putting two people who have nothing in common into a, into a room together. In this case, it was a metaphorical room because um, they weren't actually speaking with one another. What they did okay. was, it's even stupider. They, <laughs> it's, this is also like, as much as I pride myself in the lofty stuff that I was able to do at T, and I do, there was also like the really like stu- stupid stuff that I got away with at T. Like I remember... There's an ethics board at the Times. So if there is a curse word, if there's an image that shows nudity, that you everything is really, you can't just get away with stuff. You really, everything is so considered and measured because it has to fit with right. the tone of the uh, under the banner of the New York Times. And I remember once like Chloe Sevigny, what is she doing? She was like reciting a rap lyric and she said like bitches and hoes or something. And I just remember having to be in like a meeting room with a bunch of people who were really fancy (laughs) and like making my case for the words bitches and hoes. (laughs) And uh, anyway, the, the thing was, is that we would get, we would send two disparate people who ostensibly had nothing in common, a box of really weird new products and they would review them so it was i kind of don't remember it was like you know john baldessari but and natasha leone or like carly ray jepson and i don't know there were cindy sherman the the, the people were sort of run they, they ran the gamut of high low and i think in so many ways i've actually never asked callie the woman who hired me at interview if she knew about that if she like paid attention to that column but that column in a nutshell really is interview <laughs> yeah well did did interview did interview coin the celebrity on celebrity interview originally that was yeah. where it started wasn't yeah. it yeah. yeah 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 I think there are, there are so many urban legends about how it's funny because the further you dig the less the sort of more obscure it becomes the all of the origin stories of the magazine because everybody a not everyone's around sadly right B, everyone is the star of their own show and it's hard to know who is a totally reliable narrator depending on who you ask somebody was like more integral to the process than others and and vice versa and so some people say that Warhol started it so that he could because it started as a film journal in 1969 it was like a broadsheet like newspaper style film criticism journal and it used the first cover had Agnes Barda on it and it was a BTS shot of her from the movie Love, Lions and Lost God. That is not what it is called, but it's something like that. It's an Agnes Barda movie and she's in it with the actors from the, from the film. It wasn't original photography and much of it was criticism. And in large part, they say that he started it so that he could get into movie screenings because to hear him to kind of follow or try and map out 
a Warhol schedule. He was at the movies like as much as he could possibly be at the movies. I know people paint the sort of like Max Kansas City and like Studio 54 as his haunts, which they were, but he was at movies all the time. So I think a lot of people say that that was kind of the reason for starting it. And then it evolved into, I don't know when it shifted into celebrity on celebrity interviews. I imagine that it happened naturally because at some points when I go through the archives, it is, you know, Andy Warhol is there with Bob Colicello, who was one of the early editors, maybe Glenn O'Brien, who was another early editor. Carol Burnett is there and like somebody like, I don't know, somebody else is Bianca Jagger is there or something. And there's a whole group of people that was maybe originally intended as a one-on-one interview became sort of like a communal, casual group conversation. And I think that really was the nucleus for what became a more rigid sort of celebrity on celebrity format. I think it was right. just a bunch of famous people kind of hanging out in conversation. <laughs> in conversation. Yeah. And Andy was kind of the the king of of not editing yeah. as an editor too. Yeah. I mean, and the, like just his, leaving his it fam- all in. His famous thing was just sort of like turn on the tape recorder and let it roll. But it also again, it's like everyone's mythology is it's interesting. I I I I don't totally know where in the truth lies. Because For we sure. do this column um, called On Second Thought, where we, it's the back page of every issue, and we revisit conversations that famous people have had in the magazine previously, and ask them if they want to sort of like retract something that they'd said, or rethink an idea, or if their perspective on something has shifted, or if it was in fact totally right, or if they could not have predicted what ended up happening down the line. But we interviewed Carol Burnett, who, who I mentioned before. We, we were referring back to the original interview that happened in the 70s or whatever. And we, you know, said, so, so Andy said this to you and then you responded with blah, blah, blah. Well, how, what do you make of that? And she said, Andy didn't say a single word at this interview, even though all of the questions are attributed to him. It seems as if he's like loquacious to a fault, but in fact, he didn't say a single thing at the lunch. So oh, that's stuff so like interesting. Where you know, editing creates the history. It's a, you know, yeah, if, if you control the edit. Totally. So anyway, I thought that was quite interesting. But but yes, the famous thing is like, put the tape recorder on, put two people in a room and and let them talk. Right, right. So so interview was the next step after, after he, it's... with like, I think somewhere in the middle, you just casually put together a book of essays on Michelle Obama. Yeah, that um, <laughs> happened. One of my last magazine covers when I was at the Times, I booked Michelle Obama for the cover, her last cover before she left office in 2016, 2015, 2016. And it was such a special thing because I don't know, I, it's, it's such a rare feeling to put in an offer for somebody and, and kind of think that it's not going to come through and then be just like dumbfounded when it does. And it was all you know, there were phone conversations, but it was done primarily through email. And then her right hand responded saying, she does want to be on the cover and you can come to the White House and photograph her. And it was all like, what are you talking about? (laughs) So we went, I went with the creative director, Patrick Lee, and uh, Collier Shore was the photographer. And we went to the White House. And I remember 
being they had like tape in the middle of the I forget what the name of the room was but they had tape in the oh it was called the diplomats room I believe and they had tape where we were supposed to stand in the center of the room and it was a circular room with like eight doors all along the side of it all along the perimeter of it and uh they were all flanked by secret service and it was like you know you're in the white house and you're not supposed to move from the tape and I was like sweating and I thought I was gonna like (laughs) puke or like faint and then she came in and hugged everyone and immediately I was like this is what it is like to have met the Beatles like when you saw all the fans like losing their mind I I wanted to like cry and hug her and sob and thank her and she was just so cool and disarming and uh she wanted to play Beyonce so we like blared Beyonce and uh she was just like she wasn't wearing like a buttoned up matronly patrician thing she kind of had this like silk top on she was just so cool anyway it was such a great experience and that story ended up they didn't have time to give us a proper interview after all that with the shoot so instead of doing her instead of not doing her justice with like a emailed interview or something we had four people write essays about michelle obama from different worlds, these essays of, of appreciation about her. And so we had Rashida Jones, Gloria Steinem, Shimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and uh, John Meacham, I think were the, were the contributors to the T Magazine story. And they wrote essays that I edited about Michelle Obama and about different parts of what made her so special. And Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor had an imprint at Penguin Random House called Lanny. And they had done one book and then they this this ended up being their second and they asked me if I would be a part of it. So yeah, we blew that out into a into a book. I mean it's a small book, but it it was really special. The making of it was really great and it it has essays from, you know, like Tracy Ellis Ross and Issa Rae and really famous people to these two eighth grade kids. We did we partnered with a local school that I did like a mentorship talk at and, and all the kids in the graduating class contributed essays and we chose winners. Anyway, it was, it was really um, such a cool experience. <laughs> and then, you know, like I had my Michelle Obama book, but then Becoming <laughs> came out. Right, right. Book, and that did a little bit better than mine, but it was, <laughs> but it was, it was really cool to do. Yeah. That was that was right at the beginning of uh, when I started an interview. So I just remember being like my poor boyfriend, Misha, was like, you know, having to bear the brunt of me coming home, being at my wits end, like almost crying all the time, being like, I'm ruining Andy Warhol's magazine. I'm ruining Michelle Obama's book. Like, I just I can't. <laughs> um, and it, it, it all totally worked out fine. <laughs> yeah, that's a That's a lot to a lot of pressure. at once. Yeah. <laughs> Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So maybe, I mean, I was kind of mentioning this to you, but maybe more than any other magazine, I feel like Interview is so reflective of the viewpoint of its editor. And clearly that's changed a lot through history, what what the primary focus of the magazine is. I know you did that book with Asuline on the 50 years that came out last year, yeah. right? So that was probably an even better opportunity to really dig through the archives. How would you describe that evolution and what was the magazine that you inherited? It's been interesting. The book, the Asseline book was to celebrate 50 years and in rummaging through the archive, which is just such a special treat because, you know, even the B-sides are just so amazing. Anyway, we kind of discovered that the first iteration, as I said, was a, was a film journal and it became a kind of society magazine, Bob Policello and Andy. Andy was kind of leveraging the magazine with his um, with his collectors. So okay. he would put somebody on the cover and then in, in exchange get them. It was kind of like getting them interested in doing portraits. He, he had his own sort of side hustle going on. But for a while, it was like, there's a weird era where it's like, you know, the queen of so I don't even know this. I don't even know what the what the leadership is like in Sweden, but it'd be like the, the princess of, of Sweden. <laughs> uh, that is so stupid of me. But anyway, something like that. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm an obscure royal person. And like Nancy Reagan, which hasn't aged totally well. And there were a lot of like politicians and sort of socialites for a while. So it became a kind of society rag. And then it was a music magazine for quite some time. Or, or like a music inflected magazine. And then Ingrid took it over. And as much as Warhol was, is the foundation of this thing, Ingrid Sishi was the editor for, I believe, 18 years. And I think is so responsible for inheriting that mantle of, of pop and, and really making it that. Warhol was famous for the catchphrase of, of you know, of, or, or famous for creating, creating pop art. But Ingrid really made this magazine like boisterous and colorful and irreverent and funny. And it was filled with puns. And she she really elevated it into this sort of unapologetically pop Bible. 
And around that time, I, unless I'm wrong, I think that's when it became called the crystal ball of pop, which is a kind of thing that we use on and off, depending on how embarrassed I'm feeling <laughs> uh, to this day. <laughs> I like sometimes find it embarrassing to say, and then sometimes I'm like, it's the crystal ball of pop. So Ingrid really made it like a Hollywood pop magazine. And those issues, which I guess I don't know. I remember at the time being like, ooh, some of these feel like uncool. And now with a little bit of hindsight, I'm like, they were so cool because she didn't care about being silly or about seeming silly. Anyway, I love I loved that era so much. And so she was really responsible for that. Uh, and then Glenn O'Brien took over there's a real convoluted history with the magazine but there was there was a sort of the Fabian Barron and Glenn O'Brien had taken over in the late 90s I want to say and they um early aughts let's say and they created a glossy edgy fashion magazine they changed the logo to have like a sort of like a sharp icicle eye and everything was like sleek and wet and shiny and and really sexy and that and that was the vibe for quite a while and that was sort of, I had inherited that version of it. I think maybe when people were ready for something new, I think it was so great as a capital F fashion magazine. And then the world changes and stuff needs to change with it. And I think maybe right. that wasn't what people were as desperate for at the end as they were at the beginning. Because I remember just how beloved it was at the beginning. And there was no editor when I, when I, they had been looking for quite a while. I don't know what it says about me, but they've been looking for a while um, when I started. And I, I had such a clear vision that I couldn't articulate about wanting to cherry pick all of the best things of, of the different eras. And I, and I knew that was possible, but I couldn't totally tell you which bits. I just knew that I wanted to take and I wanted to throw it in a blender and I wanted to really uh, uh, celebrate the high-low of it all. And I think, you know, I've been doing it now. This is, I'm coming up on my fourth year as the editor and it took me a minute to find my footing, but I feel like we are now, what we're making is so reflective of that. And I think there was a moment when I was really overthinking what that was, like what I was trying to do. And it's really quite simple. It's just it's it's just creating a time capsule of the moment and you know we sort of agonized over what we were going how we were going to cover the, this time period since uh you know since spring we were like how are what do we, what do we do is this like are we a publication that creates fantasy and escape for people do we dig our heels into what's going on and have conversations that are strictly and exclusively about what's going on right now and I think the answer was just like you do all of it yeah. and you you turn the page from a conversation that is really about lockdown and COVID and how that's affecting culture in the city to a conversation between activists or artists who are talking about Black Lives Matter to the story about like whether or not New York is dead to a dumb piece about hot guys on TikTok uh, because <laughs> I think they all matter. And I, I look back at the issue that came out right after 9-11 and it, it, was about, it was about that. And it was a love letter to New York and it was a love letter to America, but it was also, it had a bunch of other stuff too, because, yeah. you know, you can contain so many, you can, so many truths can be accessed at the same time. And I think, yeah, 
that was and we're con- we're consuming we're consuming content that way too right like you wake up you scroll through your instagram and it is that it is a post about activism a post about fashion a post about politics it's all in there yeah. as as we're digesting it yeah and i think yeah that kind of took the air out of the tires for me i was like oh right just like make the thing that is happening right now and make it smart and allow it to be stupid and make it chic and allow it to be goofy and and have all of those things in there and that's what it has sort of always been right and it's a celebration of all of those things and I guess I realized that like that's something that not everyone is doing everyone is so determined to find their lane and be so good and sort out their tone and do all the case studies about like who their audience who their reader is and in fact it's like what if it's just all of those things? <laughs> yeah, totally. Who was your first cover? My first ever cover, the, the first one that I worked on was Emma Watson. Emma had already been booked and she is incredible. But the first one that I booked, booked, it had been traditionally was a summer issue and it was traditionally um, a split round of like new talent. And okay. Mackenzie Davis, who is an actress who's from Vancouver, is my best Yay. friend. And we went to call Lou and McGill together and uh, and are thick as thieves. And it was her 30th birthday and she was shooting um, this TV show, Halt and Catch Fire in Atlanta. And uh, we're celebrating her 30th birthday and I gave her a copy of a Laura Dern issue from the archives of Interview. And she was like, oh, I guess, like, thanks. Like, I, I love Laura. <laughs> she was like, I love Laura Dern, but okay. Whatever. Like, no, 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 you don't get it. I'm giving you the cover of the magazine. Anyway, so Mackenzie was my first. I put her on the cover with Timothy Chalamet, Tom Holland, Bill Skarsgård, and Zazie Beats. And uh, those were my first five. That's the best birthday present ever. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> And then you ended up putting, uh, you were talking about Agnes Varda being on the first cover. You ended up putting her back on at the age of 90, right? Yeah, I forget how old she was. I think, yeah, she, yeah. I mean, about that, maybe that. She, we did a relaunch of the magazine uh, in 2018, 2017. And yeah, we couldn't think, we were trying, I was like, this needs to be a bit of a restart. It can't mm-hmm. follow the mold of what we had been doing previously. There have been so many throughout the history of this thing moments where it was like, okay, we're reinventing. And it felt like the opportunity to do that. And I wanted to really uh, not because I didn't think it was amazing, but because I wanted to carve my own path. I wanted to move away from that sort of sleek fashion, sort of youth obsessed, cool thing that always that I never felt like I could really sink my teeth into. It felt like something I was always looking at from the outside and the beauty of this magazine to me was always that you were like let in um you were like Mm -hmm. listening to people gossip it felt kind of like you were there nothing felt unattainable and I wanted to kind of bring that back and it felt symbolically and then also just by virtue of putting a 90 year old woman on the cover with like a two-tone bowl cut in a giant pink fur uh mew mew dress not not for feathered felt like the thing to do and so yeah it was really it was it was so fun and she it was funny because normally you ask for exclusivity with celebrities like they can't if they're doing us they can't do vanity fair or whatever the thing is it didn't occur to us to ask agnes because i was like i don't <laughs> right. it, it didn't seem to me like if she was going to be on the cover of other fashion magazines and then it came out and she was on the cover of gentlewoman at the same time 
<laughs> and I was like, oh no. <laughs> anyway, they were very different and it was it was cool. And she should get all the magazine covers. She should have gotten in her time all the magazine covers. So that's but amazing. It, was- it must be so fun to be at a publication where you can take those kinds of chances with not only the talent that you put on the cover, but maybe having an up and coming photographer shoot the cover and then doing some really great stuff with Steven Klein or Jurgen Teller and putting them in the magazine and just having a bit more play with that format. Well, I think too, magazines are about clout in in so many ways. And there is the tendency to be like, it's, it's easy to fall victim to this idea that like, I want the most famous human being on the cover. I want the biggest photographer in the world. I want all of these things. And that is only interesting to a point. It's it's so interesting to think about like how Jurgen might shoot someone who is unexpected rather than just de facto having Jurgen shoot. And I, I you know, we should be so lucky to have Jurgen shoot everything. That's that's not the case. But but I think it's interesting to think about the pairings and the way that we think about who's in conversation with whom. We also right. think about the the photographer and their subject in that in that same way as a as a conversation and so yeah to your point we yeah we work with Stephen Klein we work with Jurgen we work with Collier Shore with Ryan McGinley all, all you know we work with such great established iconic photographers but then we love I love and and Mal Onberg our creative director we really love you know finding a new person our friend Richie Shazam is a nightlife scenester and artist and and uh was a budding photographer and i hadn't seen her shoot anywhere before and we were like let's give richie a shot and uh, all of the work that she's done for us is incredible and same with uh, cruz valdez and dara allen our regular contributors and they had never shot uh a cover before and they shot finn wolfhard which was a big Canadia moment for us, Ryan Reynolds. Appreciate you rapping. Anyway, yeah. (laughs) It's kind of been interesting too, just to see inclusivity is such an important part of your DNA, whether you think of it through the vantage point of like the celebrity and the club kid, or when it comes to sexual orientation, race, gender, you guys had that from the very foundation. So there hasn't been the catch up that you've seen other publications trying to do in getting to, you know, the new push for inclusivity. So what does what does inclusiveness and inclusion mean to you now? Is that more of a question of like, how heavily do we feature politics? How heavily do we feature? Is it more about subject matter when you're looking at that spread? I don't think so. I think I think that's the beauty of inclusion is that it's a constant conversation to be having. And you know, like no one's house is clean enough. And I think it would be disingenuous to be like, you know, it's, it's been in our DNA. We've like, yes, this is, it's been a pro- progressive magazine and it has from the get the people who were responsible for making it and the people it celebrated were queer and they were downtown and they were multicultural and they came from all kinds of backgrounds. And so we were starting from uh, the worst, you know, that conversation had started 50 years ago when the magazine began. So to your point, there was there was not tons of catching up to do. But I think the conversations that I've had about all kinds of stuff that's happening in the world right now, I think like a light has been shone on the non-binary trans community in a way that it hadn't before. And some of the people and thinkers 
whose work I look to or whose wisdom I look to keep talking about this idea of like deepening a conversation or peeling back uh, layers in a way that is infinite. And I think it's such a beautiful way of thinking about it. We have Gia Tolentino, who's the writer, do a, a contribution to this column that we have called Ask a Same Person. And we were doing it through quarantine online. And we just asked people who weren't totally batshit crazy what was going on in the world. I think we all needed to look to people who, no matter their political perspectives, like just had sanity as the core <laughs> of, of their thinking. And uh, we'd asked her about, I forgot what the exact question was, was, but it was at the height of Black Lives Matter in, in the movement in June. And she was like, I don't understand why anyone is approaching this idea of like reading about our nation's history and about reading the history of Black culture in America as homework. It's like, what a privilege to be able to learn more and to, and to continue to deepen your, your understanding of the nuance of that experience. Yeah. And so for me, I think inclusion and inclusivity is not about checking a quota. And it didn't involve us doing a whole lot of rethinking of anything, but it really was a reminder that it's like, that's a constant conversation that we're having. Um, and it exists, whether the conversation is on the front page of a newspaper and, and what a cool thing, what a, what a yeah. great celebration of, of diversity and all kinds of different humans. Cause I feel like that it seems pat to compare it to what goes in the magazine and then I'm not doing that, but the idea that you're throwing things in a blender and celebrating everyone in, in equal footing is kind of what we do. I guess then the, the next question is, how do you decide what's what's relevant when you are being thrown so many different kinds of creative works and creators from such a wide span of culture? How do you decide what's going to feel relevant now in three months, in a couple of years, especially considering a lot of content feels so disposable and we're consuming so much of it so quickly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's, 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 it's a good question. I, I, I like to think that we are not, our attention spans aren't so short that we really work. We go to print and then our own newsstands with a pretty small window, whereas most magazines work quite a bit in advance. So we have the luxury of being late to every single party, which allows us to be in conversation with what's happening right now in a, in a more immediate right. way. But I would like to think, despite that, that we're not like rubbernecking so back so quickly that something that would seem super relevant two months ago is no longer relevant now. But I guess that sometimes is the case. And I guess my short answer is that I don't totally care. Perfect. <laughs> we are not a news source. Nobody is looking for us. I think we're, they're looking for us to add nuance to the conversation and layers to the conversation, but I don't think anyone is looking for us to push it forward or to, to determine where it's going. So if anything, I think you get the magazine and it adds to something that you have been thinking about or are thinking about. Yeah, I guess I don't care. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I was watching this uh, this documentary that Martin Scorsese did on Friendly Butts, who is obviously yeah. an early writer on Interview, and she was talking about 
the AIDS crisis and how everybody talks about the incredible artists that were lost during during that moment. But she was talking about how there was this this time in New York where the audience was so refined that they knew the difference between great art and mediocrity. They knew the difference between these little hand gestures within a ballet. And so there was this kind of natural aristocracy of culture through critique. And all of those people were out getting laid all the time. So it was this generation that died off with AIDS where there was a different level of curation and critique. What do you, how do you think about those roles and that relevance now, the importance of curation and the role of the critic now? I don't know. There's, there's that, that sort of thing piece about the death of the critic comes around right. pretty, with of quite a bit of frequency. And I think that there is such inherent value in good criticism. I wonder if there's a dearth of it right now. I don't totally. I mean, there are a few people that, whose, whose opinions I look to to decide whether or not it's something that I that I that I think, you know, I should watch or read or whatever. Who are those people? I don't know. I think when it comes to art, I I, I re- love Jerry Saltz. I think that the reason the reason I like Jerry and the reason I think a lot of people like Jerry is that he doesn't feel there. It never feels like there's another reason for him either liking or disliking something outside of simply liking or disliking. And actually he would probably disagree with me. I think whether or not there's value or the, or there's a lack of value in something, whereas other people, it sometimes seems like, I don't know, there's politics involved in, in criticism in the way that there is with anything. What I really like right now, and I think that this is a relatively new thing, and I think it also speaks to me saying, like, you would turn the page from a Madeleine Albright feature in our magazine to, like, an OnlyFans star, is that there has been this democratization of, of how people, I hate create content, but, like, but communicate ideas about the world and their place in it. Um, and we have a story in the upcoming issue about this book called Black Futures, which I, I don't know if you're familiar with. Kimberly but it's, Drew. It's Kimberly, it's, yeah, my friend Kimberly yeah. Drew and Jenna Wortham, who I used to work on the floor with at, at T at the Times, they've come together and they're geniuses and they've created this book in which they've curated contributions to Black culture by Black artists and thinkers in, in, in uh, contemporary society. And uh, I, I think it's such a beautiful microcosm of the way that we should all be thinking about culture and that it includes like paintings that are on museum walls it includes public sculptures but it also includes an instagram post that has been you know circulated by millions of people and there's a resonance and a power in that that i think does have value i think it's worth questioning you know why something hits a nerve and and not totally dismissing it because because it's not hanging in a gallery it has recipes that have been like passed down from generation to generation and uh and i think there's something really beautiful about the art of making food anyway there, there's it's it's really um raised the hierarchy between what is what is high art and what is not high art in a way that i think is really interesting. Their curation comes from a different perspective where their criticism comes from a different perspective, which I think is an exciting, if the critic has died, I think maybe they're thinking about, the critic is actually in fact thinking about things in a new way, which is exciting. 
For sure. And it's something I feel like with the amount of content that we're all sifting through these days, great curation is such an asset just to have someone to look to and to see the world through their vantage point. And obviously, that's a big part of what you've done with interview. Yeah, I would like to think so. I'm always like when I make an issue, I'm always I'm always like, is there something in here that I'm going to be upset that my parents see? And (laughs) if there is, I'm like, okay, and then I've done something right in this one there's spiros rent this uh greek photographer has captured queer it's not totally queer but it's not totally straight nightlife and on the surface it is just people having sex but it's actually (laughs) kind of more than that it's reflective of a generation of kids who aren't totally stricken by labels or preoccupied by labels who are a little bit freer with their bodies than they have been. And the quote from the photographer is kind of like, you know, like they could be having sex, but they might not be having sex. Like that's kind of beside the point. It's like sex could happen. But anyway, I remember I put, we we have that in the newest issue with Nick Cage on the, on the cover. And it was funny because Nick Cage is somebody that my parents both know, like they don't, they don't know Lana Del Rey, but they know Nick Cage. And so I think they were like, they got it in the mail and were super excited. And then they flipped to like, you know, the, the naked guys at the after party about to have. You sex. trapped them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they were like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Also in that issue, your, uh, your editor's letter is, is about the, the thing that's floating around right now about New York being dead and how you've heard that before. What do you, how do you feel about the future of New York? It's so hard to talk about. It's like New York is is so many things. Like I, an Instagram account that I love so much is New York Nico. I don't know if you follow, but he uh, he's a really great resource to finding out what local businesses and New York sort of um, establishments are in danger of going out of business right now. And he, I used to always get my hair cut at Astor Place. It's a hair place on Astor Place. Um, and you go down a set of stairs and it's a basement and there's like an adjacent karaoke bar that no one ever uses. And there are like 40 different stalls of people cutting hair. And there's just, you can make an appointment with a specific person, but often I just go in and they like throw you to whomever and everyone does an equally totally fine job, but it's like an experience and it feels like a community of people. And it was, uh, it had been threatened to, to go out of business because of COVID and he has been a really vocal supporter. And it turned out a couple of days ago that a bunch of private investors got together to, to save it. Wow. And there's, so there are stories like that where they're so heartening. Valentino just did a window at Casa Magazines, which is a store in the West Village where I love that um, store. those guys have been there forever. And uh, it, it was, again, it was just like a brand coming in. I, you know, people I think are so skeptical of big business right now, but a brand came in and really did help to save that local store. So I think it's scary. And I think there are a lot of places that have not made it. And that is so sad. But then I think there are a lot of places that will. And there was a real sense. I'll be curious to see how, how winter hits because we haven't had a full winter of COVID. But when it hit, my boyfriend and I went to Minnesota to be with his family. Um, and we weren't sure how long we were going to be there, but we were gone for uh, about six months. We like thought we were going for two weeks. So we missed much of the first wave of COVID and came back in September. And it was really sweet. It was like watching everybody kind of renegotiate their spatial relationship to everyone. And, I, and it was 
taking people who are normally like, you know, the like, I'm walking here. Uh, <laughs> all of a sudden being like, oh, pardon me, with like you with your stroller, please, please go past her. I don't know. There was there was a common courtesy and respect and a softness that you don't often see in New Yorkers. And I think that's the sort of intangible quality that people talk about when they talk about like post 9-11 New York or, yeah. or New York after any sort of, after it's been dealt any sort of big blow. So yeah, I mean, it'll be, I think it'll be fine. I think even just seeing the restaurant pods that that people are erecting to try and make it through the winter, there are like these insane igloos and like Swiss chalets and things like all over the place on the street. And people are resilient and will figure it out. And so yeah, I think I think New York will be just fine. My parents were living there in the eighties, and you know. AIDS happened. There were so many people dying of drugs within the art community and all of that. But my mom has this memory of her and my dad had this little like old Alfa Romeo and she pulled up and stopped at this red light and this car pulled up next to her and she looked over and it was Andy and he was sitting in the passenger seat and she just remembers he looked at her and then he looked forward and blew this gigantic pink gum bubble and it snapped and the car and the light changed and the car went so off. Cool. And that I remember growing up and hearing that story and thinking about moving to New York kind of through that lens and hearing about all of the grit, but then hearing about all of these amazing creators and creative moments that happened that always would continue to make that city so unique. Yeah. And, and you can see that there's like a burbling of a community of artists and and kids who are who didn't leave and who are at the Christopher uh, Piers and who are kind of like, who who dug their heels in and love the city and are reinventing it with their, with their own crews. So yeah, I feel, I feel pretty optimistic about, about the future of the city. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for, for continuing to, to find what the heartbeat and pulse of, of the city is and putting it into the magazine. And for those of us who can't be there right now, it's really nice to live a little vicariously through it. Well, I, I, it's easy when it's New York. I feel like going back to your first question, like if, if I were still in Cornwall, Ontario, I feel like perhaps I would be having trouble coming up with that <laughs> six times a year. But no, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about right now. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Alex, it was so nice to talk to you. Thank you. So nice to talk to you too. And enjoy, enjoy that gorgeous farmhouse behind you. And that beautiful people concludes this episode of the Inspirati. I hope you picked up some inspiration to take into your day. Please rate, review, subscribe, and leave a comment if you're enjoying these conversations. You can follow the Inspirati on Instagram or find me at alex.merrill. Stay inspired and keep creating. The world needs it more than ever. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details planning for your next trip 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.